1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received us, sorry, as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you have yourselves been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Uh, Just skip the next bit to chapter 5, and we're going to read the first 11 verses. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Why people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and, will they, woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And let me pray for the children and for Rob as he comes and speaks to us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for for these instructions. um, And I pray that they will be helpful for us today. That we would listen, that you would be with Rob as he explains them to us. You would speak through him. And that you would speak to the children as well as they learn with us. I ask that you would um, help keep us awake and focused. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hello. It's a, wonder, it's a wonderful joy uh, to be able to be with you, and uh, it's a wonderful joy to be able to meet together, isn't it? Uh, we've experienced something of that already uh, this evening, uh, different people serving with the gifts that God has given them. Um, that's a real encouragement to us, isn't it? Um, so we thank God for that. Um, uh, we are in this uh, mini-series, um, and some, you, you will have, as of last week, uh, you will know what it's about, um, because we're looking at, as Sam said, this, this life that we have to live as Christians in between uh, Jesus' first coming 
and the kingdom that was revealed then and the kingdom that is going to be fulfilled uh, when Jesus returns. And uh, we started uh, looking at the book of letter of 1 Thessalonians last week. Um, so if you weren't here last week, it would be great for you to catch up with that um, and to uh, sort of hear the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians because they do obviously kind of inform what happens in the later chapters of 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, I did ask you to uh, read that um, this afternoon. I don't know if you've got a chance to do that, um, just so it's fresh in your mind, so that you've filled in the gaps, uh, the bits I'm not going to have a chance to speak about, um, because we've only got this, this Sunday left uh, before we move on to something else. I want uh, you to just chat to the person next to you and answer the question, what kind of life has God saved Christians for? Just share some thoughts. I'll give you two or three minutes. What kind of life has God saved Christians for? Okay, I'm going to interrupt you there. Sorry. I always do this, don't I? I interrupt you when you're just getting into the, the real meat of the conversation. Um, but that's, you know, we have to move on somewhere, somewhere don't we? Um, I'm sure you've got tons of things you wanted to say about that. Um, just in summary, shout out a, th- a few things. What kind of life has God saved Christians for? Holiness. Holiness. Yeah? We could just stop there, can we? <laughs> Thank you, Gemma. Thank you so much. Um, hit the dad right on the head, but uh, we're going to look at what that means, obviously, uh, in this passage today. But um, any other thoughts? Any other things that people said? Go on, Joseph. Righteousness, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Teaching people about him. So some of the stuff we were looking at in that um, bit of acts in terms of the pass, passing on of Jesus' work. He is continuing his work for his people to make him known. That's what God is doing in the world today. Thank you. Um, Brotherly love. Another one for the passage. We've got two, two front rowers here. we got, you know, absolutely gutting for it. Uh, brotherly love. Love for one, his people. Okay. Um, those are the two things we're going to look at today. Um, holiness, living to please God, and loving his people. And they're not against each other, not at odds with each other. Actually, we're going to see more and more that they are pretty much the same thing. Living to please God is living to love his people. We can't say we live to uh, please God if we don't love his people. And we can't love his people if we're not living to please God. It's just, they go together. Um, but let me just show you from this passage, uh, particularly chapter 5, how does Paul describe Christians, the Christians he's writing to in Thessalonica, how does he describe them in chapter 5? Children, yeah, where are you looking? Verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. That, that is a good description of every Christian. Not just the Christians that Paul is writing to, but every Christian. And um, it, it, it's a good description because it speaks of God, what God has called them out of, which is spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness is a life lived in the nighttime of rebellion against God. And also a willful rejection of the knowledge of him. They couldn't, we could know him. 
Romans 1 says that, doesn't it? His eternal power has been made known. His invisible qualities have been made known. And yet, um, there's a willful rejection of that knowledge, and therefore it's a willingness, a sort of choice to live in darkness, in ignorance of him. And God called them out of that, and he called them into something. By very implication, you call someone out. If I called someone out of the kitchen, I'd be calling them into here, wouldn't I? So God calls them out of darkness, and he calls them into light, into the day. And what is that bit that we're going to be thinking about today? It's what has God called us out into? We understand how God called people out of spiritual darkness through the gospel of his son, through the death of Jesus on the cross. And what has he called them? What kind of life has he called Christians and saved them for? It's a good question, isn't it? Um, that's what we'll spend most of our time today thinking about. And in the language of chapter 5, God has called Christians, those he has saved, into light or to live in the day. But to give further details of what that life is like, that new life, we, we need chapter 4. Because we could speak in metaphors all day long, <laughs> and quite happily. Um, but, but to get to the nuts and bolts of it, we have to have chapter 4. Chapter 4 comes first, and then Paul goes into this thing about living in the day, as those who are awake, not asleep, as those who are sober-minded. So chapter 4 is where we're going to start. Um, and we're going to see Paul is explicit about what living as children of light means for two areas of life, uh, for self-control in the area of how we use our bodies, for sexual intimacy, and in, in encouragement and love for his people. So those are the two things we're going to look at, um, one by one. And we're going to see there is some connections between the two. So Christian, if you're a Christian here today, live to please God and love his people by pursuing self-control with your body. Uh, let's read that together. Let's look at what Paul says. Um, let's look down with me at chapter 4. Verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body, his own body, in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Christian, live to please God, love his people, by pursuing sexual uh, self-control of your body. Pursuing self-control with your body. Um, avoid sexual immorality. That's what he says. Abstain from it. In verses 1 and 2, we heard there that they received this instruction before, from then, and they are already doing it. What was the instruction that they abstained from sexual immorality? What reasons does Paul give for that? Well, he says that this is God's will for them in verse 3. Their sanctification. That was what, what God saved them for, was that it would be sanctified. They would live a holy life. In uh, verse 4 um, of chapter, uh, chapter 4, 
It says that each one of you should know how to control his own body's body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The first reason Paul gives here is that they are not to be like those who do not know God. Not li- literally not to live the way that those who do not know God live. Because there's a difference. They do know him. They have received his spirit. They have been taught by him how it is they are to live. And so they are to look different from the world around them. Uh, in, if you look at the ne- very next verse, it says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. And this is something I'm going to pick up a little bit later on. Um, it would not be loving to their brothers. The second reason Paul gives is not uh, you to be different from, from others who do not know God, but, but actually that this is the way to be loving your, fa- your family. That self-control of your body is a way to, be, to, to avoid wronging your brothers and sisters, presumably, as well. And then if you look in verse 7, the final thing he says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So he sort of top and tails it with this thing of God's will for you is your sanctification. And what God has called you for is not impurity, but holiness. This goes right to the heart of our question, doesn't it? What, has God, what kind of life has God saved Christians for? Well, simply put, he has called them for holiness, not impurity, and in particular in the way in which they use their bodies and the self-control that they need to learn and practice and grow in, in the way that they use their bodies. I think Paul um, has particularly in mind uh, here adultery, in terms of wronging your brother. Um, If you're considering how you might... Um, have some sexual uh, pleasure from someone else's wife uh, or even pursuing that that's certainly going to um, hurt and uh, if, if nothing else discourage your brother um, even, even, even in that um, so I think adultery is at the heart of it but I think there's, there's lots of things he doesn't name adultery and I think that's because there's a lot of things that lead <laughs> lead to adultery so he's saying um, He's not willing to just say adultery, because then we'd say, okay, I haven't done that. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. That includes uh, what we look at, what we allow ourselves to, to spend time thinking about. Um, and, and this might not be a particular struggle to you, okay? I, my guess is that the people I'm looking at now, maybe 75% of people would say this is a particular struggle for me. I mean, about 50% of us are of the male side of, of, of things. So, so I'm sure that would probably be higher in terms of a percentage. But of all the people here, in our church family, there's going to be people who are struggling with this kind of thing. And Paul says um, that we as a church, as a people, are meant to, be, meant to be marked by the fact that we pursue self-control in this area. And so while that might not be something that particularly affects you or is you think it's particularly relevant to you, it, might, it will be relevant for others. And you can encourage them in that way as well. Um, so what kind of life has God saved Christians for? In this particular context and in our context today, this is God's word speaking to us today, this is a really, really important thing, isn't it? 
is so relevant because you look at the world around and it would say the complete opposite. Immorality and sex, it just doesn't put the two things together. It's not, nothing is morally good or morally bad with sex. In fact, the only thing that is bad or good is how much you might get in terms of sexual pleasure and gratification. And yet, here, we are, because God has saved people and he has given them his spirit, they long to live in a way that pleases him and loves his people. And then there is a morally good way to do that and a morally bad way to do that. Paul anticipates some who would say, um, well, this is just Paul's words. If you look down with me at um, verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Some people would say, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, God has saved me. Uh, that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter how I live. And yet Paul really throws down the gauntlet here because he says, um, those who claim to have the spirit of God in them cannot in the same breath deny or throw out the words of the one who gave that spirit. It just doesn't make sense. You can't, you can't say, I have the spirit of God, and yet to say that the one who gave me the spirit, his words don't matter. And Paul says, these are not just my words. This is, the authority comes with God and his word, because he is an apostle. And so whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Um, just to go back to that comment about wrong your brother, that was what particularly struck me when reading this, if I'm honest, um, is that comment about wronging your brother in this way. Um, it must be connected to the idea of self-control, because if you look, Paul says, in this way. He's just been talking about <laughs> abstaining from sexual immorality, that each one know how to control your body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust. And then he says, uh, therefore, whoever, sorry, uh, in verse 6, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. He must be talking about how we use our bodies. And connecting it with how we treat our brothers and our relationship with them. Um, Paul will say, and I'll show you this in the next section when we look at love for each other. Um, that's the other mark um, and of the Christian, of the one who has the spirit. Um, but Paul says that God has already taught them to love one another. If you look down with me at, um, at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need to, for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So this is the connection that Paul makes between the two. Because he says, I don't need to write to you to tell you to start loving your brothers and sisters. Because... God has already started that good work in you. And you already love your brothers and sisters. Because the spirit, he's given you the spirit. And the spirit is about loving. He loves God's people. And he is producing that love in you. He says, I don't need to write to you to start doing that. All I need to do is write to you to urge you to continue to do that. And I can urge you because of what God has already taught you by his spirit. So, love for one another, and here Paul says that there's something about sexual sin that is about wronging your brother or your sister. 
that it will eventually lead to that. It might start off in private, no one really knows, but it will always lead to wronging, harming, hurting, discouraging your brothers and sisters. And I think this is an amazingly different way to speak of sin. Um, I remember quite distinctly, um, it wasn't on, on the area of sexual sin, but I was a bit lax, I was a bit ill-prepared for something that I was doing. Um, you, you're really surprised, obviously. Um, everyone's looking back at me like, this was just yesterday. Um, no, but the person came to me, and they, they're a mature Christian, and they said, um, Rob, they didn't say, Rob, you were wrong, and what you did was bad, and you could do better. And this is why. They came to me and they said, Rob, was that loving so-and-so? What I'd done was I'd put them on the spot. They ended up having to rush around and feel stressed because I'd not thought of them. And what that did for me was really helpful. And the reason why I'm telling you is because it's stuck in my head. It gave me, it showed me actually the motivation for living to please God is living to please him and loving his people. And rather than just thinking in terms of, okay, uh, I have to do this or I don't have to do this, it really helped give me a different motivation. Because if I am someone whom God has saved, who the Spirit is at work in, then I will want, there will be a desire in me to love my brothers and sisters. And that person just saying, I don't think that was a good way to love them. It absolutely was dynamite. Because it changed the whole motivation for for what I was doing. If my motivation hadn't been that, I knew that it should have been. And so it wasn't just a case of whether what I was doing was right or wrong. It was whether it was loving. And because God has put his spirit in his people, um, he gives them a desire. That's why Paul can say, I don't need to write to you to say love one another. Because God has already taught you to love one another. All I need to do is encourage you and urge you to do that all the more. And he does that in the area of knowing how to control his own body in holiness and honour. Because you know what? That will be the way in which you hurt your brothers and sisters. That's the way in which I will hurt you is in, the, in this area. And, and it's serious. And God has called us to something better. He has called us to, uh, and given his spirit so that we may walk in this new fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. You look at the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, and patience too. Grow in those who trust. Self-control and faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. And Paul encourages them here, as he has done when he was with them. Abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. It's a wonderful thing. Christian, live to please God. Because you, you can't, you can never have pleased him before he saved you. And now that he has saved you, you get to live to please God. 
in a way that pleases him and he shows us what he what pleases him he wants us to love one another as he has loved us um, so Christian, live to please God, love his people by pursuing self-control with your body. And next we're going to see Christian, live to please God, love his people by encouraging and building them up with his word. That was how you use your body. This is how you use your words. And the Christian can live to please God, continue to live to please God, love his people by encouraging and building them up with his word. Um, there's something that's discouraged these early believers. Do you know what it is? Maybe I'll give you a minute, shout to the person next to you, and then you can do that. Uh, what, is it, what has been discouraging these Christians? You need to look somewhere in chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 4. Okay, well, what do we think it is? What, what, what were they confused by, concerned by? There's lots that they didn't know about God's word, obviously, but what... what what event are they struggling with? Grief. Thank you. About yeah, about other believers who had died. Um, and Paul says he does not want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. He means who have died already. Um, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul writes to them, and this is one of the big reasons for him wanting to write to them, to send Timothy to, to be there in person when he gets the chance, is to, to make up what is lacking in their understanding of, of what is going to happen. He has told them that, um, that Jesus is returning. They know about that. We saw that. He, just, you know, he mentions it all the time, as we told you, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the next bit, he's going to say, um, you do not have, need to have anyone write anything about the times and the seasons. You know... It's going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when it's going to happen. So he's not correcting that. But there is something about um, those believers who have fallen asleep, who have died. And something about their concern for them or confusion over when they're going to get their resurrection. And in what order? Are we going to be resurrected first? If so, how are they going to be with us? And, and Paul writes to encourage them with... God's word. And he says, uh, if you look down with me um, in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So, so those brothers who have died will rise first. Then we who were alive, if it's us when Jesus returns, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So Paul is writing to encourage them, to exhort them, to, so that they may not be discouraged, because they are. To build them up with his word, to establish their faith through the unpacking and teaching of the scriptures, to meet what is lacking in them. There won't be some... When Jesus returns, there won't be sort of some intermediate stage, as some may believe, purgatory, where we sort of spend some time away, separated from God and Jesus, and then we go to be with him. No. We will all, what's this say? Um, we will always be with the Lord. And they will be with us too. It's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it, for those who are concerned 
for those brothers and sisters who have died, and they just don't understand how and when and what God is going to do. They know that it will work out in the end, but they're just a, just a bit concerned and discouraged by that. And then Paul tells them, if you look down with me, at verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. So his instruction to them is to encourage one another with these words. Christian, live to please God and to love his people by encouraging and building them up with God's word. In fact, Paul's instruction to encourage one another is actually the very last thing we heard in that second reading in chapter 5. Verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He doesn't need to write to them to start doing it because God, by the Spirit who lives in them, is getting them to do that already. He's just encouraging them to do it all the more. Christian, encourage one another. Love, serve one another with God's word, as you have been doing, but do all the more as we expect Jesus is coming. Paul says that concerning their love for one another, he does not need to write to them, and yet he writes to them. (laughs) He writes to them to urge them. To urge them all the more to continue to do this. And he can only do that because God has written it on their hearts. They've received the spirit. And so they love one another. And he's saying that's true of you. And that's the whole basis for me being able to write to you. To do this. If you think about it, it wouldn't be worth. It would be a waste of Paul's breath to write to people. For whom they had not been saved. And they had not received the spirit. To say, um, you've, you should live to please God um, and love his people and uh, do so all the more when you await for Jesus' return. Uh, don't, uh, don't, don't live in sexual immorality and uh, do live to encourage and build believers up in the word. It would be a waste of his breath because if the spirit hasn't done the work in them, they're, not, they're just plainly not going to do that. They don't want to, and they don't have the power to. God, by his spirit, has to have changed someone, given them a new heart, and then they will do this. And so I just want to commend that to you as, you know, for your own self. How, how not as a sort of really sort of oppressive, introspective thing, but, but thanking God for how you can see evidence of love for his people because that's not normal. That's a spirit's work. And um, how you can see evidence of moving away from sexual immorality. I mean, we've got people in this room, I'm not going to look at anyone, <laughs> who will tell you about what life was like before they met Jesus. And what life is like now. And we should say, wow, the spirit has done this. And he gives us He's called us from darkness into light. From living in rebellion against God. For living for him. And for his people. And that is an amazing thing. It's not something we have to do or should do. It's something we get to do. Um, 
If you are an unbeliever uh, or someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, I didn't say this at the start, but this is a window into... Excuse my little rubbish drawings, but um, this is a window into the new life that the Spirit brings. For those who God, God has saved. And you get to look in the window and you can get, get to look and think. Um, compared to, to what I'm experiencing, what I have in my life, and what I see in the patterns of my life, is this any better? Is this any better? This new life where people love and serve one another, where they fight sin. Yes, they get it wrong, but where they grow in holiness, in patience, in self-control. Is that any better than the life that I have? And if the answer, if your answer is yes, it is. I wouldn't want you to take the wrong end of the stick here. I wouldn't want you to say, this is the life that we've been told to live, so let's live it. Paul is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that. Because you can't live it. Jesus has to save people. He has to give his spirit in order for you to be a new person, to have new life. He has to put a new heart in you. A heart of flesh. You must be born again. And I'd love for you to just pray that prayer. Lord, give me your spirit. (laughs) Because if you don't, I'll, I'll stay the same. And um, maybe you're someone who has been around church a bit and you would uh, call yourself a Christian. Um, but your response to this thing of abstaining from sexual immorality is sort of, well, I'm just not doing that. I don't, I don't want to do that. Inside your, your reaction is, I just don't want to do that. You're, you're annoyed at me and Paul for even saying that you should. Or maybe you, you come up with some excuses. You say, well, um, sorry, that's the cross crosses the way to the new life um, maybe you're the person who says well because um, it doesn't apply to me anymore there's sort of some kind of way in which God's word was for then and it's not for now and, and that's my because or maybe you're saying because I can choose what, I, what to do with my private life and it has nothing to do with you thank you very much maybe that's your response to this kind of thing and I just want to point you back to what Paul says in verse 8 Because he says that anyone who disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his spirit to you. And so in the same breath, you can't be someone who who has the spirit of God and rejecting the word of the one who gives the spirit. And so I just want to ask you that question. Is it that you, on the outside, the religious veneer of your life is looking all right, is looking Christian ish and yet nothing on the inside has really changed your heart hasn't changed you don't want to do this you don't want to love his people you don't want to walk in holiness because you need to be born again you need a new heart you must be born again you must have a new heart unless the spirit has unless you've been taught by god to love one another unless the spirit has written that on your heart you won't do it and so if, if that's your initial response, if that's your settled response to this, then that would be the, the place to go. God is kind to show that we, we, on the outside, things might look like we've got all our stuff in order, but on the inside we remain unchanged. If you're a Christian, 
This is the life that God has saved us for. And it's not because we should live it or because we've been told to by someone who's at the front of church, but because the Spirit has taught us to live like this, has changed us from the, outs- from the inside out. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to see that, um, for others to see as well, that, that nagging feeling of, why do these people love each other? Why do they spend, want to do things for each other? It just is so confusing if you don't have the answer, which is the Spirit has done, done this. The Spirit has brought this about. God has saved them from a spiritual darkness for holiness, for loving each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us into a life lived for you and your people. Thank you for your spirit in us that we do love one another. As we expect the return of your son, help us to do so more and more in our words, encouraging each other with your words and in our bodies, not wronging our brothers and sisters. Father, we are so weak and yet you who have called us, you are faithful. We look to you. Amen. Uh, why don't you just uh, turn to the person next to you and just uh, share one or two things that you, th- you thought was helpful or that you want to take away. And then why don't you just pray with the person next to you, if you feel comfortable to do that.